Welcome back to Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast that explores the stories of successful entrepreneurs who've overcome adversity and still built thriving businesses. And we're tapping into the wisdom of Skip Berman today. He's an author, consultant, and keynote speaker who loves to talk about growth mindset and psychological safety. Funny, we love talking about those things too. Skip's book is Safe to Great. He was born here in Australia, but lives in Europe now. And we are spanning three time zones recording this today. Thank you, Skip, for being here. It's great to have you. Lovely to be here. Excited about the conversation. Yeah, so are we. Thank you so much for joining us. And we can't wait to get into it. So we're going to just jump in the deep end of entrepreneurship. And tell us, you are quite the consummate entrepreneur. So what is it about it that you really like? And sort of how did you get here? I suppose it's about having an idea, sometimes coming at crazy times and say, okay, let's give that a shot. I have a consultant business I've had for many years, like 12 and a half years, et cetera. But I've had lots of attempts at it. I mean, I had a, my first company when I was 18, but that didn't go so well, but you learn, you learn from disasters as well. But sometimes it comes to you because it's a profession, but sometimes it comes to you because you have a calling and you want to try something, do, do something different. I have a hotel, which my wife and I are sort of building up in France. It's an old farm. And uh, that's a call. And we were, we were sort of lying in bed and sort of thinking, I actually don't know where the idea came from, but suddenly we we're talking <laughs> about it. Suddenly we we're online and, and a month later we bought something and, and then COVID hit. And then, oh boy, then we had to work out how to pay for it. But there you go. <laughs> we're, we're, we're okay now. But there is something very special about taking idea and making it, turning it into something. So that's a real creator thing. And I love that. Where does that not, I mean, you have to have an amount of desire for risk, not necessarily desire, but less fear of risk than other normal people might <laughs> think buying a hotel and trying to have a hotel during COVID is insane. So where does that come from? It was insane. I mean, I didn't know COVID was going to hit. We, we'd actually signed the deal on the house and then suddenly the whole world just, I mean, I hadn't seen that. I mean, I've seen some strange things come and go. That one I hadn't seen coming. A global pandemic and a I don't know. I've had to do some quite difficult things. So when I think of risk, I don't really think about it like that. I just think of challenge. I think, okay, all right, that bank doesn't want to pay for the help us fund that project. Let's find another one. <laughs> you know? And every now and then we, we sat there sort of looking at each other think that, and we just got our first baby together at the time. We're thinking, this is pretty interesting. But we managed to to find a bank after I think six or seven. It was pretty <laughs> I love it. The yeah, thrill of the but, chase. Yeah, I suppose it's just bouncing back from it and and saying and just keep pushing because it, often there is a solution there and often it's the determination, the grit uh, to keep going that something emerges. I mean, I don't believe in in magical mystery tours, but I've been able to push through some boundaries which other people would say, why on earth would you do that? I mean, I, I wouldn't, as I said, I don't think I would invite anyone into that journey because there are some dark moments where you sit there going like, ooh, will we lose the deposit we've paid and all sorts of stuff like that. But I, I suppose it's determination. And uh, luckily, I think like when every, every entrepreneur, you have to have a partner who's on who's up for it. <laughs> And if you can't look each other in the eye and say, okay, let's let's make it work, otherwise you're screwed. Excuse the French. Curious, <laughs> is your wife entrepreneurial? She is. And she loves the project in the hotel. She's currently working in corporate, but she finds it really boring. So I think she has a real entrepreneurial spirit in her. Uh, P.S. This um, is going I, public. Is that still okay? All right. 
No, that's okay. No, the reality is, you know, when you're a couple who one is an entrepreneur, sometimes you have to make choices about your biggest determinant of success is your financial setup at home. If you don't have that right, you're going to be like, it's not going to work. So having a salary that's more guaranteed is helpful. And I think an awful lot of small businesses are built up around that. And that's how they, that is a good way to, to make that work, to balance your risk out. Partner bootstrap your business. Yeah, and yeah. and it just means that it, it can be a tough month or two and it, the bank looks at you differently. Yes. Very differently, I should point out. I've got a sugar mummy and, and she's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> can I have one of those too? <laughs> yeah, what do I find one? <laughs> okay, so let's put it on the table here, Skip. Tell us everything that's going on in your life. Okay, you said before we pressed play that you have two, three children? Three Infants? children under three, yeah. Yeah. Three children under three. You yeah, bought a hotel. A, yeah, they're all gone. Yeah. All girls. Oh, blessed. Yeah. Aren't you blessed? Yep. Yes. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course. Of course. Um, so three girls under three, a hotel in yeah. France that you're doing a reno on, a yeah. consulting business. And we rent out and we run events there. Yeah. Okay, consulting okay. business. Yes. You've just written a book that is to be yeah. published later this year. What September. else have you got up your sleeve? Oh, I think there's, I mean, seriously, <laughs> all of them are full-time jobs, including being a dad. <laughs> it's That's a lot. nuts around here. Yeah, I don't know quite how it works. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I, I like all those features. I feel that I'm in a transition, though. I feel like shifting into the uh, the writing books process and then looking at building a, slight, a very different business, which is very interesting. I, I mean, I've never done that before. Uh, the book business is a business in itself and doing these partnerships. So I'm really learning a lot about how to build that business along with how to run a hotel. So. You've also developed tools and assessment tools yep. and assets in relation to the business. Yeah, I started a research project about six, seven years ago, to sort of bring psychological safety and growth mindset together in one idea, because I felt there was that was an interesting point of departure. I took the name Good to Great from the famous Jim Collins book. I think it was a bit of a joke to start with, but then I said it to myself, safe to great. I went like, oh, I like that. And then I said, oh, that's that's a pretty good idea. And I'm a bit of an expert in psychometrics, as they call it, which is the measurement surveying uh, of organizations, culture, leadership, et cetera. So I just set about building that. And I did that alongside of my business over the last seven or eight years, um, you know, slowly building up this global database, which enables us to, to produce these reliable maps of, you know, leadership in terms of how much growth mindset is present in a leader and a team and in an organization. And that's a foundation for what we're doing. And, and that's been an enormous amount of effort. I mean, building that IP is a lot in that. It's been a really, as usual, busy six or seven Yes, I've lost track, actually. It's just, uh, <laughs> and you mentioned having a distributor for those tools as well. Yeah. What's behind yeah. that? Yeah, I think it's, again, sort of shifting out of the consulting model, which is an hour. Uh, it's not that I, I, I eliminate that entirely. But one of the biggest problems is how does an entrepreneur in, in services, particularly consulting services, sort of be able to turn it into something that's clickable or some sort of like, because you can't sell consultant businesses very easily. It's very hard to accumulate wealth in them. But on a clickable business where you have distributors and, and you have running on business, which is independent of your consulting service, that's a different ballgame. And in, in my industry, that is the goal because it's suddenly then you've got an online business that you can sell. It's automatically valuable. And so I've been trying to get here for a really long time. I've had this vision 
wow, uh, probably for longer than about 10 years or even longer, to be honest. It's just taken an awfully long time to get in the position where I could realize. So this is like the fruition of, I don't know, uh, countless hours of work to get where we are today. We're not finished. We're finished enough that we can and have been able to provide accreditations and, you know, train others to use our tools. So that's, that's very satisfying. I feel like that was a big idea. And, and the book really is an important apex in that business model and the keynote business as well. But I'm like lots of other consultants sort of seeking that way of converting your knowledge and experience into something that, that can generate more business for others, that you can take what you do and put it into another business and they can be successful as well. And that's cool, but it's a very new step for me. And so there's a lot of things I'm learning and I'm lucky I have a an old mate who's an expert in negotiations and, and um, franchise arrangements and stuff like that, who like this morning, we spent an hour bashing through a contract and there's some details. But I'm excited by it. In principle, it's the relationship, the ability to help others grow a business, which I'm excited about. It's fully entrepreneurial. It's full on. There's no doubt about that. And I do feel at times that I am like out there floating with very little safety net. <laughs> but I suppose that's inevitable when we do what we do. It absolutely is. So what was that like insight that you had that led to safe to great mindset? Like what, what was the that you saw leaders were missing and needed to become great? I think that probably goes back uh, to a client project I was on back in 2006, which is eight so long ago, it doesn't really matter. I was working for BHP Billiton, which is a big iron ore company. And they were working with a tool set that, uh, and an approach that I hadn't seen before, which was this ability to use one sort of model to link the development of culture and leadership. So you'd be able to link those two things together. Not only that, it was a model that not that talked about strengths and what great looks like, as in what's effective leadership, what creates psychological safety, what makes organizations grow, but also talked about dysfunctional leadership. In other words, mapped out what things are unhealthy, dysfunctional, potentially toxic in cultures and in leaders. And, and that sort of critical side of things surprised me when I first saw it because I hadn't seen anything. This was probably about 10 years into my initial career. And I said, I like that. And I worked with those tools and approaches for quite some time, but felt that there was a, I wanted to, to, to modernize it, to bring it into something. And I think Amy Edmondson and, and Carol Dreck's work has sort of like brought some really new thinking. I think the world that we're operating in as leaders today is very, very different to where it's been before. And I think Many leaders are kind of stuck with ways of approaching things that are pretty old-fashioned, and the future's coming fast, and it ain't pretty. So that really drove me on, and I really do have a, a, a legacy with this, is that I, I'd like leadership to fundamentally embrace the future of work, and the future of work is going to be have some characteristics, one of which will be it's going to be co-robotic, in other words, working with smart machines. Secondly, it's going to have to fit within this, how do we manage a climate that's out of control? Uh, kind of space, how much we're controlled by Facebook and things like that. How do we make sure that we're leading in transparent and open ways? Uh, because otherwise, our agency as humans is going to be impacted or it is impacted negatively by a lot of technological development. And I think we need leaders and organizations that understand that and can work with that. So they're, they're big ideas. I know that's a bit philosophical, but Leadership needs to to think we're going to have huge ethical problems already now and in the next 10 years, it's going to get really bumpy. And I'm, politicians will not be fast enough to solve this. Business leaders will have to step in 
and perhaps lead the way in some respects. And whether it be a small entrepreneur or a big corporate leader, similar kinds of things. Because otherwise the consequences for our communities and our employees is pretty scary, actually. You're so right. And I, I feel a little bit relieved that it is an opportunity for businesses and for private enterprise to step in and to lead. Because too often we as society sit back and wait for a government to do what we know needs to be done and then it doesn't happen. And we need to take personal responsibility and start walking the talk. And if we see a solution, then let's work on enacting the solution. Anyway, not to get too political, <laughs> but I mean, I think that's very visible all over the world. Yeah. We need community. We need, we've got to strengthen our communities. We cannot continue down a path that that just separates everyone into their individual little home and makes them scared. Uh, we've got to get people out there engaging in their communities and building safer, growing, healthier communities. Uh, anything that resists that is is a problem, and we need to fix it. And there are lots of new business models emerging which are based on community and building healthy ones. And I can't choose everything, but I'd love to promote them and to say that that's we need we need to include those choices in the way we lead our businesses. The pandemic kind of swung the pendulum. So it, it's really isolated people so much that now the pendulum has such momentum, it's going to swing right back to go strong on the community and the connectedness? I hope so. The problem, though, is that there, there's a huge benefit to keeping people fairly isolated, you know, without putting getting, again, too political on it. But it's just it's just how it is. We have the ability now to sort of like manage, micromanage everyone down to super detail, and that's not good for you. I can reassure you our stress and mental health problems in America or around the world I will not be solved by self-care and individuals looking after themselves. That, that's not going to solve any of that. Uh, and it never has. There's no evidence to suggest self-care or mindfulness can solve a serious stress or burnout problem. It can only really be solved by re-engineering the work itself. And that means peers and bosses need to reimagine how the work is done every day uh, to deal with that. Um, otherwise, the opioid crisis will, will simply get worse. It's not going to get better. We can't. So there's, there's a need for healthier ways of working, definitely. And, of course, AI, is, the productivity coming out of AI should enable us to have healthier workplaces because, you know, it's going to enable huge lifts in the biggest leap in human productivity possible will come from smart machines. That's a massive opportunity as long as capital doesn't take all the money for itself, that it shares some of it with the employees and makes sure that it's a humane workplace. Not just the work itself, but the changes that each employee will have to go through to work within these, you know, smart machine co-robotic spaces. That's a big thing because, I mean, 40% of all jobs are going to get wiped out in five years. So, you know, there's a bit of change necessary. There's a lot of relearning needed. Massively. We've been talking about this. We've been talking a lot about AI lately and the impacts. Mm. And I've been thinking a lot about this it will come down to the leaders, the mindset of the leaders, because a leader could say, nice, I can wipe out 40% of my staff, which is more profit for me. Or the leader can say, nice, now my staff is going to be that much more productive. I can get more and build more with them. So there's a very different mindset. And how, in your opinion, do you think leaders, or what do you think leaders should do to embrace a better, wholesome workplace for all that benefits a leader, but also benefits their employees and sort of culture in general. I think we're seeing companies making those choices. There are emerging structures and 
ways that companies that are making those choices can brand themselves so that because you need some sort of virtuous loop here in some way you have to get it so that the good choices you're making about how you lead your people uh, are things that customers value etc and you become a part of a self-reinforcing movement i think we're seeing that without that self-reinforcement in other words a, a sort of like a a movement of some sort towards organizations that have that it won't work but i think there are consumers out there quite a lot of them that want to make good choices, that want to be trading with organisations that are making good choices about employees and perhaps the environment or whatever that happens to be, about, about the communities that they work in. And they need to be encouraged. Now, whether the government needs to get behind, I don't know, but I think there's enough buyers and consumers out there that, that want to make educated choices about who they trade with. And now, we may not be how to have a premium that's massive to start with, but I think that we're seeing those signs that there is an opportunity here to grow. Even big corporates see that. If you take the chairman of Siemens, for example, he's right into this. He says that we're, we're doing the great, this great reset, as they call it, the World Trade Organization. Sorry, the World Trade, the um, oh, that lot they meet in Davos, in Switzerland, the rich club. This yeah. great reset is about rethinking work, and and for them, it's an opportunity. But it's an opportunity because there is an aware buyer consumer out there who wants to make better choices about the products and services that they can show. I think that's where we have to go, but accelerate it by like a call like this, where we're talking about those ideas and promoting those people, building the communities and, and the support mechanisms that make it more a realistic or an obvious choice. Is it true that your next book is going to be about how companies can transition from being great to green? Yeah, I think that's, that's an exciting project. We started a few months ago. I, I did forget to mention it as one of the other things I'm doing. <laughs> I'm trying to work with a company. It's, it's sort of a, it's two phases of this. One of which I think there's a lot of companies that are starting green. In other words, they're stepping into some sort of sustainability pathway because there's a lot of new business opportunities emerging there. But there are also legacy companies of various sizes that are needing to make new choices about how they operate and to perhaps link into these communities that value customers and that want to buy products and services that are made that way. And so I feel there's a lot of emerging literature about how to do that. So I felt it was important that we sort of looked at what is the leadership required to do that. And what one of the key fundamental theories is what we call ecosystem leadership, which is sort of stepping and leading, not from the sense of leading your company, but leading your ecosystem or the community, which can include suppliers and vendors and consumers and communities. It might even include collaborations with municipalities, the mayor or the state, et cetera, because typical these new business models require lots of changes in the way we do things, right? So if you take like hydrogen and some of these other new movements, they're going to require lots of changes in how we store electricity, how we make it. All sorts of things are going to change, which offer lots and lots of entrepreneurial opportunities. But the fact that to do it quickly, we need local government, local businesses, and consumers in that area working together to realize these opportunities. The company I'm sort of partnering with at the moment has a really crazy job. They are trying to help the NHS, which is the health provider in the UK, to manage its, its recycling of everything they throw out. So they've done a recent audit where they go into all those lovely bags that you throw out of a hospital and sorting through to see how much sorting is being made because it has enormous influence because if you don't sort the recycling correctly, you can ruin a batch. So they're there with their gloves on and their hats on and, and everything, and they're going through some fantastic bags of refuse to sort of do an audit 
And this is a, an almost a, it's a fantastic business opportunity too, because they have to com- they're going to have to comply with some very very stringent sustainability requirements by 2030. And to get there, in the time scale, uh, there's a business there for some people to consult. <laughs> so all you entrepreneurs in that area, you, you might have to get your gloves on and your mask on and some sift through some nasty bags. But this is a business. And these are good jobs and these are good business opportunities. So I'm trying to work with that company to see how we sort of create leaders that can not only you know, motivate their employees, but motivate local governments, motivate local consumers, you know, understand the behavior of getting people to recycle properly in hospitals. How do we do that? And that's cool. That sounds fun. We've got a timeline. We've got to do it fast. We've got to do this faster than we've ever done before. So, Skip, we're you know talking about like the speed of AI and how fast we all need to pivot towards this sort of new workspace that we're in, and recognizing it's much easier for an entrepreneur starting out the very small ship full of people versus a business with five hundred crew people cruise ship that has to turn. We know that we can turn a sailboat faster than we can turn a cruise ship. So how does the speed of it impact sort of how we work? And how can we pivot into this new probiotic workplace? I absolutely love that term. I'm totally stealing it and we'll be using it in the future. It's exactly what it is. And it's moving so fast. And I'm sure it is slowing down some and speeding up others. In general, can we, can we move in this new, new environment quick enough? This is the real question. It's the speed that's the problem. Uh, And even the size of the change, it's way beyond what humans are meant for. We like generational change. We like like 20, 30 years to get around to something new. And that's why psychological safety has come up as a huge issue, to be honest. I think, you know, why Amy Edmondson, who researched the idea for quite some time, why it's really resonating so much everywhere. People go like, I'm actually a bit worried about this. I think the latest inflation crisis hasn't helped it either. So a lot of people have been struggling to pay bills. This is not a this is not optimal. I mean, you can't have a growth mindset and learn optimally when you're really scared about some fund foundational things that you're at work or perhaps in your finances and something like that. So this is where if we don't reinforce community, reinforce relationships, reinforce our families, our people aren't going to be learning anything. They're going to step back into very protective, defensive modes of operating and. Some of the social unrest we see around the world has got a lot to do with that, is that I don't know whether I can step into this yet. So what am I going to do? I'm going to step out of this. That's not going to get us anywhere because we cannot get off this. We're not going to change technology. It's going to come. There's no, there's no way you can avoid it. But slowing it down, reinforcing community is important. That's why I feel that sort of hyper-individualized leadership has reached its nadir. I don't think you can continue just to my sort of like manage one to one. I don't. I just don't think that's going to work. If we don't have teams, whether they be virtual or co-located, we've got to have stronger relationships. Otherwise, we're going to lose it. Humans just go very, very protective and and boring and dangerous if you don't work hard to create that psychological safety that Edmondson's talking about. And then we can grow. Then there are possibilities for growth to happen. But don't just sort of scare people and then tell them to learn. What's your advice to leaders, whether they be government or private, to get their teams into that safe space? Well, most of the leaders don't know what's going on either. Let's face it, this is happening really fast. Most of them are just going to continue doing what they usually do. So whenever they see a challenge, they're just going to perhaps sack people or, I don't know what, hire a consultant to solve the problem. A lot of leaders need to get a lot cleverer about what's going on. I think there's a lot of leaders who simply don't 
understand what's going on with AI. They don't understand what's going on with our communities, don't really understand what's going on with their with their workplace relationships and the mental health issues. They need to learn a lot more here about what's going on and stop blaming individuals for it and start saying, if we make better choices at work as leaders, we can create better mental health, less burnout, less stress, uh, and, and psychological safety, which can lead to learning. That's It can all be done and there are methods for it. But if you're frazzling out, frustrated, worried about, don't really know what's going on and just doing knee-jerk reactions yourself as a leader, it's going to get messy. That's what I call hippos, aggressive controlling leaders, et cetera. And so the they hippos. can learn more about this in the book, in your book once it's published? Oh, yeah, I cover it. I can't talk in great length around that issue because I've got some other things I need to sort of share with them, which are about behaviours and principles about great leadership. But I think I've only really embarked on this journey myself because I sort of thought, particularly during COVID, hang on, there's something going on here, which we need to think about. And then I realised that, you know, there is a lot more going on here than I had thought myself. So I think there's a, a real need to start learning and talking about some of these issues, but not just apply the usual thing. And what we saw here with the layoffs in the IT industry was the, was the usual thing, which is we're struggling a little bit and then it's just sacked 10, 20,000 people. <laughs> right. Good excuse Apple, to get some extra margin. <laughs> when I look at, say, some companies I do work with, like Lloyds Bank, They've gone in and said, no, we have to retrain or even do substantial retraining of people into digital areas simply because they're not going to get any employees anyway because the demographics are against it. Most countries are restrictive on immigration. They're not going to get new employees. They have to retrain. And that's going to take a while. Humans just simply don't learn new industries or new competencies that quickly. It's going to take half a year, a year, maybe two years to retrain people. And I think you do see companies that have taken that on themselves to spend the money to retrain their staff and to provide them with good pathways into a smart machine era. Lloyd's is one of them. And there are others, right? BlackRock's another one. And we need to be championing those efforts because no matter what are the right efforts. Now, I'm hoping other entrepreneurs, the problem is that when we're small businesses like us, how can we afford that? That's where it gets harder. And that's where I think there is a need for local governments or ways of sharing that need to retrain people somehow. I think there are some countries that are a little better at that than others. But there's definitely a need to share that burden because otherwise entrepreneurs just simply won't be able to do that. I'd love to be able to support it, but it's, you know, there's limits to what I can do within my cash flow and three or four people on my team. I, mean, can't, I can yeah. do some stuff, but I can't do everything, right? Yeah, you, you've initiated the conversation. You've gotten people thinking about it. You're putting yeah. a fire under them. So that's your part. I'm sitting here listening, say I'm an audience of this podcast and thinking, well, it's all changing so quickly. How do you retrain in that environment? Don't you have to wait to see where it's going? But of course, that's ridiculous because it's just going to continue changing quickly. Where? How do we, we pin already, it? Well, we already know the, the predictions are pretty clear and they're coming to fruition about what industries are going to get hammered. And they already are. I mean, it's not we're not making this stuff up. But most people are fairly ill-informed about what that is all really about. The biggest challenge is that white-collar work in the US and Europe is going to be hammered, and that's the problem. It's a double combination, one of which is smart machines, but also because smart machines are going to allow people in low-income countries to be able to compete very, very aggressively with white-collar work in Europe and US. So that means we're going to have to step up big time, and there's no time to wait. <laughs> You've got to get into it. Even sort of like embracing ChatGPT and some of these new technologies coming out, Microsoft's going to come out with 
all sorts of automated features. You're just going to have to get onto this, man. You can't just sit there and say, I'm no good at this. You, you just got to go for it. I'm surprised at how good ChatGPT is and what it can do for me. It's really impressive. And some of these other AI stuff, it's really, really impressive. And you just got to go for it. I, I think entrepreneurs luckily perhaps already have that instinct to say, okay, I got to learn this. If it can make me more productive, it can give me a half an hour extra per day. I was about to say something rude, but yeah, do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Here. I was going to throw out one of those wonderful local localisms there. <laughs> It's okay. We don't have a child audience. <laughs> We're all adults here. <laughs> but I think it's a lot of a difference of mindset between a fear-based mindset. And I think the bigger company you have, the more people you're responsible, the bigger your profit margins are and all of that, the more fear of losing it is going to impact how you approach it versus a curiosity mindset where someone with a smaller business, a solo entrepreneur can afford to be more curious and just, oh yeah, can this give me back some time? And I think that's how younger people approach things too. Like I have a 14-year-old and he's very curious about things and he's willing to try things and take risks. And so what if it doesn't work? And so what if it blows out? It doesn't matter. He'll just go for it anyway and give it that, that try because he's curious about it. He's interested. And I think if we approach things as leaders with the curiosity mindset, we're going to grow faster than someone who's holding back. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Curiosity mindset, I'd call it growth. It's the same kind of thinking. It's very easy in the, the cut and thrust of a, of a day running a business to get really caught up in the numbers and, you know, did we make enough today? And staying on top of that is a real battle. I think you also have to make choices who you're hanging out with. This is that classic thing that some very famous people would, would say that, you know, you've got to make sure that you're, if you're going to spend time at the golf course or you're spending time at the country club, make sure it's with the kind of people who are saying, Let's get on this rather than people saying, oh, it's better in the old days. Watch out for nostalgic types and get them out of your life because <laughs> they're not going to help your bottom line in five years. You need to hang out with the people who are saying, okay, well, what are some of these young people doing with TikTok? What are they doing with X, Y, and Z? How can we embrace it? What could that look like? I mean, it is wicked what can be done. So that's what I'd be looking at. Who am I hanging out with? What kinds of inspiration am I seeking? And I'm hoping those entrepreneurs who've always been good at adapting and, and changing will, will do so as well here. They might need a bit of love and support from us. So here's a big hug to you all. Let, let's, let's go and kick it. Let's do this thing. A hundred percent. That's what we are here for. And, you know, I love the saying, like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I'm a big believer. You got to You got to go out and seek the mentors, the people who yeah. are that little bit ahead of you. So, like, who do you seek out? Who are your mentors? What are you reading? What are you curious in that space. I was a bit like talking to my business development consultant, my old mate. He is really sharp at this stuff, has his own, he's a venture capitalist. And if I have anything associated with this, I'm going to pick up the phone and say, hey, Matt, well, what's up? Um, and he's built some amazing businesses and, and really knows how to, to do that. And so that's, that'd be one person I'd reach out to. For me, it's also these new business models. It's just saying, hey, I got no idea. What's the right thing to do? Uh, when I say that, it's not because I'm, I'm lacking confidence to work it out. I'm open enough to say, like, I don't really know how to do this. I've never run a marketed a book before. I've never built a distribution or a franchise model. Who can I talk to? What would that look like? And to be honest, the internet's full of really good stuff, by the way. I mean, I couldn't, I, I was really impressed. I hadn't, um, I was trying to uh, sort of work out how to use some software again. And then I found this fantastic little video of a, of a woman who taught her grandmother how to do to, to record her memoirs 
because I was sort of wanting to do my own audible version of my book. So I thought it was a cute little video and it was very informative. And it was wonderful to see this 80, 90 year old woman sort of reading to demonstrate how to record in Premiere to do my book. I think the internet is full of so much good material to learn from. This podcast is probably one of them too. I, I think that's a great way to learn. And, and again, you know, make sure you're expanding your network with the kinds of people who are working with things that are more cutting edge, more out there. Think carefully about who you spend most of your time with. Not to say you ditch the family, but <laughs> you want to make sure that some of your business associates are perhaps very different to you and, and have some different experiences and different business models and see what you can learn from them. Well, I could be cheeky and ask you, Skip, whether your book was written um, with the help or significant help from AI. <laughs> but I trust it that was. it wasn't. I think you're a very disciplined no, author. Oh, yes. In the process, uh, it was because I was sitting at dinner with my business development manager in Fremantle in, in Western Australia where I Good come from. And yeah. we were having dinner in Frio and he says, oh, have you seen this chat GPT thing? I said, oh, I've got no idea what this is about. And he's really nerdy, by the way. He runs a an AI-driven security camera business. So that's just nice. one of his projects. And he was showing it to me and he says, really crazy. You can just do this. And he was showing us over dinner. That's how nerdy that was. And I thought that was really annoying as usual oh. with Matthew. And then I went, then I went home and I, I looked into it. I realized he was bloody all right. And, it's not that I would use it to write. I think it's a bit tedious to, as a writer, I'm hopefully a better writer than AI is. But there are some, sometimes you need a bit of a, a little bit of a kick. And it's nice that I, I like the way you can just write natural questions to it. I do. It's just easier. And it does come up with some really good answers. Now, you have to double check them because some of them are just completely wrong. But, yeah, but as some of the recent lawsuits have attested to. Yeah, yeah, lots of the, my friends are unreliable as well. They say lots of lots of CRA. So true. It doesn't matter. <laughs> true. They'll tell you something over dinner that you're going to go and tell somebody else without yeah, yeah, fact yeah. checking. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I wouldn't so, mind some sort of fact checking control on some of my friends and business <laughs> business associates as well. Yeah, that's Siri on the way home. Hey Siri, is yeah. it true that? <laughs> yes, I think. Um, no, but I love writing and, and always have done. So I'm, I'm hopefully written a book together with some people who really helped me, the editors and proofreaders, et cetera. That's been a fun process to work with really clever people that, that I've become a better writer because of it. And it was really annoying, uh, particularly Leslie, my structure, my, my sort of copy editor. And wow, she just said, nah, fix this. Make it 25% shorter. <laughs> Can you do this in one sentence instead of five? I'm like, oh. I wake up every morning. She's in Canada and I'm in Copenhagen. I wake up every morning and I have this huge list of corrections. And I have, oh, my God, again, here we go again. (laughs) But I do love it. I love it. Something better came out of it. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Is your skin a little thicker for it? I can definitely get a ping of annoyance, but I'm, I'm brutal when it comes to learning. I've always had that quality. I prefer to know how crap it was and, and just hit it. I might get a little bit, well, I don't get defensive. I tend to get annoyed, mainly with myself. And then I just suck it up and get on with it. I've been a reasonably good learner over the years, whatever kind of thing. But it's if I screw up, I just go, yeah, look, I screw up every hour. Most of the time, I don't even know I've done. <laughs> I always somebody actually tells, well, this is it. This is what people get wrong about. They think it's about, you know, we all need to make more mistakes. No, no, dude, you're making mistakes the whole bloody time. You just got to admit them and or talk about them and, and try to improve. There are mistakes everywhere. Some of them 
opportunities are mistakes too. Missed opportunities are mistakes as well. You know, that oh, we didn't yeah. get that business or we didn't talk to that person on the bus that may have changed your freaking life. Oh, yeah. That's, that's what keeps scary. me awake at night. It's yeah, the missed I'm opportunities. That's for any entrepreneur, it's that thought, oh my God, if I just stayed a little longer, I'd spoken to that person at that event and, and not that weird person or that person I usually talk to who bored the hell out of me. Yeah. Missed opportunities. I hate that. That drives me nuts because we're on the business of luck. We just have to be there the right place at the right time, but we just got to be at a lot of places at the right, just be a lot of places and hopefully <laughs> luck will be with us. I love it. Elon Musk said, if he had, people said to me, oh, if you were a superhero, what would be your superpower? He said, I'd be lucky. Oh. And he's right. I would love to be lucky all the time. That would be awesome. But we all know as entrepreneurs that luck is usually the fruition of an awful lot of attempts at it. Yeah. It takes a lot like of work to be lucky. I, I like that. Yeah. If, if I had a superpower, wish I was, it would be, I would be lucky. <laughs> That's great. He is an annoyingly good at coming up with a one-liner, but there we go. That's so true. <laughs> the king of Twitter. He needed to. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> no. uh, so listen, I have to raise this. On LinkedIn, not so long ago, we started a little conversation about, well, you started the conversation, I chimed in, about whether people in the near future will even bother to read because yes. they will potentially be suspicious or skeptical that it was written by a machine and not a human, which I disagreed, yeah, I but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm just not so sure because there is something of that connection with something human. <laughs> the, to know there was an author matters a bit. I think if we look at sort of like the service industry, it's a bit the same. The, the magic of that moment, that special moment, is a human moment in service. It's that thing that happens when we're in a restaurant or whatever. Because you can make the best food in the world, but if that connection between people in your restaurant isn't there, they're not going to give you a good review. Because the connection and how I feel about something shapes how I evaluate it. And I do wonder whether it raises this skepticism or this sort of cynicism is what am I reading? Is it real? Is it not? And we're into that. I mean, we've had the truth war for some time, but the deep fake where we're headed is, is mind boggling. And I just don't know. I think there is that chance that a lot of people just turn off and, and feel like I think there's that chance of what we call a, a sort of like a, a massive movement of cynicism. And, and so, like, does anything matter? And right. I think that is a worry. Whether it will hit everyone, I don't know. But I can understand why people would sit there going, if everything's fake and everything's made up and, and it's all run by a computer and, and who owns that? That's where that all conspiracy just gets out of control. And that's a pity. I'd love to live life optimistically and hopefully and caringly. But we have to, we're going to have to encourage each other to do those things in light of the fact that, that it's so easy to fake. It's going to be so easy to, you know, make stuff up and, and videotape it. And it's going to be, I hope our kids have learned enough at school about what I call the digital enlightenment, which is not be fooled by what you see online, that they are better at it than we are. I mean, our, my generation, which is from the 60s and 70s, they learned about television. So we think of digital you know, like social media, like it's television. And television was regulated when we grew up. But it's not anymore. Generations have a way of, it's a bit like when television came for that previous generation, they understood it like radio. They thought it was the same thing. But it wasn't. It was different. 
And, and so it takes whiles for people to really adapt to this. So I'm hoping these new generations are much better at knowing the difference between what's real and what's not. And I'm hoping school systems are really investing heavily in what I call the critical thinking skills, cyber critical, to be cyber critical uh, about what you're seeing, what you're consuming. Do you really need that dress? Do you really need that car? Flashing up constantly on, on Facebook, but that's just an algorithm. It's got nothing to do with life. But we're going to have to resist that subliminal reinforcement a lot to manage that. They read books and lots of particularly fiction books and everything like that. And I suppose whether it's made up by a computer or not, as long as somebody has a name on them. I don't know. Maybe I think robots would make great leaders because they're going to be more reliable than a lot of leaders are. So, And more clued in <laughs> on what the right solution and leadership uh, style will be. Indeed. This is this question is that the one of the worst type of leadership is unpredictable. Yeah. A leader that's unpredictable is the one that generates one of the most highest levels of lack of safety. So one of the things that robots is they are more or less reliable. At least I have in theory. Maybe I just don't know enough about robots, which is probably true. <laughs> yeah. No, you raise it. It's a really good point there about the predictability um, and the importance of that because that gives stability. And even as a parent, if you're an unpredictable parent, it leads to a lot of anxiety in a child because they don't know what's going to happen next. Whereas if you have routines and you have a way of doing things and you're predictable in your response to emotion or things that happen or crisis, then there's this level of calm within a family, which also equals in an organization where it's like, okay, this crisis can happen, but the leader is going to react this way and everybody kind of falls into line of what needs to be done. And then you can act and pivot, especially during times of crisis, like a pandemic, right? It's exactly, it, it showed who the strong leaders were. Honestly, this has been such an incredible conversation. I really don't want it to end. I think we're going to have to do a part two on this as yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, it's going to move so fast. I think the conversation is going to be a little different in three months from now anyway, right? Who knows where where we're going to be? But we always like to ask on this podcast, and this will kind of be our final question today, is we have talked a bit about resilience, and it's sort of underlined everything I think we've spoken about so far. But what is your definition of resilience? What What does it mean to you? I like the word grit, Duckworth's word. or I mean, I think of grit, it's probably a John Wayne film. I think it was called True Grit. Uh, it's a lovely word, grit. I mean, I have a whole model around it, but I won't bore you with all the technicalities of it. But the ability to recover from setback, the ability to remain optimistic and positive, not necessarily enthusiastic, but willing to, to take action that is an attempt to make sense of things and make progress under extreme pressure are examples of resilience. We know that people who are resilient have good relationships. And whether we're talking about resilience in the moment of crisis or through life in general. Relationship is the most clear determinant, particularly mental health for men and length of life. All this theory is around that. If you have good relationships, you live longer. Screw the diet, screw everything else. You've got to get that sorted. So isolated, detached and and people living on their own, they're not going to live long. And no matter what we feed them, it's pretty irrelevant. So there's a lot to do with how relationship and connection provides us with the emotional spaces that, that, that allow us to, to do the things, as I said, to recover from setbacks, to remain calm and pro- proactive in a difficult situation and be able to find that extra energy necessary to step into complex, ambiguous, uncertain situations and, and make the most and, and, and make something good happen, make something great happen. 
means in those difficult situations, you say, okay, I'm going to try to make something great happen, step in positively, constructively, proactively. And I'm going to do that because I know that will best likely lead to others responding positively to that attempt. Even if I'm feeling like SHIT, they will more likely respond to that. And that will make me then feel like there are more resources available. I know it's a funny word to use, but fundamentally resilience is about also responding in ways to crises that mobilize up more resources around you. Because if you don't, you choose these negative paths, these more toxic or you know, you you cut yourself off from the resources that would actually enable you emotionally, intelligence-wise, whatever, collaboratively to be able to solve this problem. You get so that's my offer of what resilience is. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And here's to gritty leaders who are brave, proactive, positive, and embrace all the new that is coming rapidly to work. Yeah, Jacinda Dern, she's a wonderful example of that. I, she's absolutely the you know a fantastic example, and also somebody who knows when it's time to time to stop. That's okay too. Exactly, brilliant, brilliant example. Thank you so much, Skip. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely, and I um, hope to have another one soon. Love to. Thanks. See ya. Thank you. So thanks for joining us on Resilient Entrepreneurs. We are Laura and Vicky from Two for One. We love supporting entrepreneurs, especially with mindset, marketing, and motivation, which is why we've built an incredible community of business founders who meet weekly in the Level Up League. If you'd like to know more about it, look us up at 241branding.com.